Uh, let's turn our Bibles to the book of John, chapter 6, and talking about being a blessing while being bummed. Uh, so we start with this. How many of you have ever gone by your feelings? Now, that's a stupid question because we all have. <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. She's confessing already. But uh, now it feels like a yo-yo existence, straight up and straight down, no stability. Just, uh, just going by feelings. And uh, it's not the way to go forward in the Lord. So, so what happens when I'm really bumped? And the Lord puts a bunch of needy people in front of me. So that's what's going on in this story this morning. I want to start with this, with this true story. It's over 100 years old. David and Svea, is that how you say her name? David and Svea Flood. They're from uh, Scandinavia. They were missionaries in 1921 in the uh, Belgian Congo, which today is Zaire. I think it's still called Zaire. It's right in the middle of Africa. So here's her story. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood from Sweden uh, went to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They, they met with another young couple, another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons. Now they're going to be key uh, coming up here. The four of them went to, and sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to the remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter town for fear of alienating their local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact the villagers had was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chicken and eggs twice a week. Svea Flood, a tiny woman of only four foot, eight inches tall, decided if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead him to Jesus. In fact, she succeeded, but there was no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided they'd had enough, and they went back to the central uh, mission statement, mission station. David and Svea Flood remained in the village or near the village alone. Then of all things, Svea gave, uh, found herself pregnant in the middle of a primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. The little girl was born whom they named Ina. The delivery, however, was exhausting and Svea Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only 17 more days. She died. Inside David Flood, her husband, something snapped at that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his daughter back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, remember the other couple, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the airport, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within months, 
Within eight months, both Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. So now there's the, the baby's by its, herself. So the couple wanted to serve God and yet seemed that everything they worked for was in vain. So after the death of the Ericsons, the little baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted their Swedish name from Ina to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at the age of three. This family loved the little girl. They were afraid that if they returned to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and, uh, and switch from missionary work to pastoral work. That's how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey, Dewey Hurst. Years passed. They had a fruitful ministry. They had a, a daughter and a son. In time, did I just get louder? Did you hear everything I said? Do you want me to start all over again? You're playing with me, Pete. In time, I'm almost done. In time, her husband became pre president of the Christian college. Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. Remember, she's Scandinavian. One day, a, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who sent it. And of course, she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There was a primitive setting with a grave and a white cross and on the cross were the words, Svea Flood. That's her mom, her birth mom. Aggie jumped in a car, went straight for the college, found somebody who could read the, the article. And the, the lady goes, okay, look, what does it say? It, she summarized it. It's about missionaries who came to a village long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ and how after the whites had all left, after the white people had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that he gradually won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief became a Christian. Today, there were 600 Christian believers in that village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Svea Flood. Here's where it gets good. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, so Ina, who became Aggie, now married for 25 years, the college presented them with a gift to, of a vacation to Sweden, her hometown, her homeland. Aggie uh, sought to find her real father, an old man now. David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He was recently suffered with a, a stroke, still bitter. This is 40-some years later, at least 45 years later. Still bitter. He had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brother and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, even though he's still ill, but you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. 
Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the apartment with liquor bottles everywhere, approached the 73-year-old man laying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said. He turned to her and began to cry, I know. I never meant to give you away. She said, it's all right, Papa. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened when he heard God. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the entire village to Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He never hated you. The old man turned back to look at his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. By the end of the afternoon, he'd, gone, he'd given his life back to God. He resented the, the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed a warm moments together. Angie and her dad, or Aggie and her dad, her husband, I'm sorry, soon had to return to America. And within a few weeks, her dad died. A few years later, the Hearst were invited and attended a, an evangelical conference in London. A report was given by the nation of Zaire, formerly Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterwards if, she, if he had ever heard of David and Sphaeus' flood. Yes, madam. He said in French, he's being interpreted. It was Sphaeus' flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who bought, brought uh, food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, you must come to Africa because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In that time, in time, that's exactly what Aggie did. Along with her husband, they were welcomed, cheering throngs, uh, by cheering throngs in the villages. She even met the man who had been hired by her dad to carry her down the mountain in her little cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day, in the church, the pastor read from John 12, 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then he followed with Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. All things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's promise to each one of us. Maybe you're here today and you still don't understand 
how God could bring good out of pain. I pray that God would reveal his will to you in time. Until then, grab this promise. Hold on tight. Put your hand in God's hand. I'm just amazed. I love that story. Sorry. Sorry if I put some of you to sleep. It's a long story, but I just love it. It's, uh, it's been years since I shared that. And I, I think it's just so sad. This man spent years, actually decades, in bitterness. He held a grudge. He, he lived with resentment. He lived with unforgiveness. He was mad at God. And what a wasted life. Even though the seed that was planted decades before grew to 110,000 believers. That's a wasted life, though. That's, that's just, just shame to live in bitterness and resentment. Now we're going to switch from that and see how it applies to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. There's only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. The resurrection and the feeding of 5,000. Now, the background, remember the yo-yo, straight up, straight down? The background to this is a yo-yo. So for some reason, John doesn't record this part, but the other three Gospels do, actually kind of emphasizing John the Baptist had just been uh, beheaded. But first is, is the yo-yo up. Jesus had sent his boys out. They were in ministry. They're going out to all these towns. They are preaching the word. They are healing people. They come back to Jesus high as a kite. They are floating. They have never been used like this before. I don't know if you've been there to where you go, man, I think the devil used to use me. And now Jesus is using me. Touching people for all of eternity, this is insane. I remember back at uh, Stonebreaker's uh, living room, you guys have heard what, what would happen early on in this church in the 70s. After the Bible study, which lasted a minimum till 10.30, a guy came to me and said, you got to end by 9.15. We thought, you are so carnal, get out of here. 10.30, earliest. Then we, some of us would go in the back bedroom of Stonebreakers and say, hey, anybody wants prayer, come on back. And people would trickle in and go out and we'd pray for hours. I remember, because I lived right around the corner from Bill, like literally a stone's throw away. I remember walking home at night at one in the morning, just that God had used me. It was just an amazing experience. We're floating and then having trouble falling asleep because I was so excited about what God was doing. That's how these guys were. They're coming back. Jesus, you can't believe what's going on. People were healed. People were delivered. People were repented. And so there's the high. But then the low comes down. John the Baptist is beheaded for being salt. He'd go up to King Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, and say, you know, it's not lawful to, for you to have that woman. He's living in adultery. He's living with a married woman. And for being salt, he ends up having his head removed. You're probably familiar with the story. His girlfriend's daughter, probably 15, 15 somewhere in the a teenager, does a sensual dance. So sensual, he's just going, wow. You ask whatever you want up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And he made this vow in front of all of the party guests. And so her mom, who was so mad at John the Baptist for pointing out her sexual sin, 
says, hey, get the head of John the Baptist. What kind of a mom does that? What kind of ungodly counsel, ungodly influence? Yeah, take his head. I, I can't imagine. And then the head comes on a platter. I mean, that's kind of gross. And so straight up, man, the Lord's using us straight down the evil. It had to be like in, you know, the 10 plagues in, in uh, Moses' day? The ninth plague was three days of darkness. And it says it was a darkness you could feel. That sounds like America to me today. There's a darkness you can feel. They're passing bills now where you can kill a baby 28 days old for any reason at all. I don't know how. How do you do it? How do you even dream up such a bill? Who's the one that administers the death, whether it's a needle? How do you do it? I don't know. It's just like we are living in a time of darkness. And so here the yo-yo goes up. Wow, God's using us. The yo-yo goes down. I can't, I, I'm sickened by the darkness in this area. And at this point, Jesus tells the boys, let's take a break. Let's go to a deserted place and just get alone. I am all about taking breaks. I'm all about vacations or times to get away, times of renewal, times of rest. And that's what they're doing. However, I read this once. I have no way of proving it, but it's a fascinating statement. I read once that if a train is going 100 miles an hour and suddenly it runs out of power, whether it's coal or electricity or whatever, that train can still coast for another 70 miles. It ran out of power way back here. And instead of a time of renewal, I'm just coasting. I'm still going. We're doing good. 70 more miles. And I think that explains a lot of Christians. They ran out of power a long time ago. And they're still making progress. But they're slowing down. And when they stop, it's really going to be a stop. And so you have this idea Maybe it's due to that you're going, I need a break. I, this is going crazy. I'm feeling the evilness of this world. And yet, Jeremiah, the prophet, when he wanted a break, this is what he heard. If you can't keep up with the footmen, how are you going to contend with the horses? Meaning, Jeremiah, so far, you've been trotting with those. You're just walking along, and I'm increasing I mean, you mean the, the pace is going to pick up. You're going to now run with the horses. And if you're having trouble so far, how are you going to make it? If you're running out of gas now, how are you going to make it so far? I don't like this. I don't like hearing that the pace is going to pick up, especially if I'm feeling like I need a rest. But that's where, uh, this is what's going on. You can say, but Lord, maybe this is what Jesus might have been thinking. But Lord, I don't want to pick up the pace. I want to get alone. And there's going to be thousands of people. No, no, I don't want that interruption. I, I'm, I'm grieving over the death of my cousin, John, John the Baptist. I'm sickened by the evil in this world. And by the, besides, I feel like a train without power. And it's at this point of feeling down, of feeling bummed, that Jesus is going to be asked to meet the needs of a lot of People. So we pick it up in John chapter 6. I'm reading from the New King James. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
It's a huge body of water in northern Israel. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were uh, diseased. Now that's important. He's given a reason why a lot of these people are following him. They saw him do miracles. And Jesus went up on the mountain and, and there sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing the great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, what shall we buy? Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? <laughs> he said, to test him. I love this part. Because he knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. But he's testing his uh, disciple. Peter answered, 200 denarii, like six to eight months of wages is not going to feed this crowd. It's not sufficient for them that everyone may be even a little, a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here. He has five barley loaves, two small fish. But what is that among so many? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, and the number about 5,000. Now, that's 5,000 men, let alone the women and children. Probably looking at 15,000. And he said to the loaves, or, or, and he took the loaves, and, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments of that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up, and filled the 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves that were left over um, by, by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly, this is the prophet who's come into the world. Hey, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Four things that made a big difference. If you're picturing this, the high been used by the Lord like never before. The low, John the Baptist was killed for being salt, for telling people you're in sexual sin. Let's get out of here. They go over to a deserted place they knew about. They get there. There's at least 5,000 men. They're going, I don't want this interruption. So if I was the apostles, one of the apostles, I'd say, let's just make a U-turn. Let's find another place. I don't like this many cranky people. Uh, you know, the needy people. And he goes, no, no, no. The difference was, it says in Matthew's uh, gospel, that Jesus was moved with compassion. He saw more than a crowd. He saw people who were like sheep without a shepherd. He's, he, uh, then he, it says he received them. He'd receive Herod the Tetrarch if he'd repent. He'd receive Mary, the mother of Jesus. He, he, it didn't matter. He'd receive everybody. He, here he just, um, he spoke to them about, about the kingdom of God, meaning he kept God in the center of his relationships. And finally, he, he healed those who needed healing. So he met their needs. He didn't just do spiritual things and then walk away. He met their needs. Now, there were all kinds of people there. We've already read that it says, they saw him do miracles. 
Now, if you had seen Jesus do a miracle, wouldn't you testify of that to your parents, to your buds, to your friends? This, dude, I saw him heal the blind. You got to come see. I saw him raise the dead. I saw him pull up a paralytic and the guy walked. I saw it. And you go on and on. You go, you got to see this guy. So some people came because of the miracles he'd done. Others came, it says, because they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at me and go, oh my goodness, they're, they're just wandering. They're existing, but they're not enjoying the abundant life. Others were there because they wanted to hear the word of God. Others were there because they were hoping it's going to be a free meal. So there's all these needs, all these um, motives out there, and he's ready to meet all the needs. So he's going to put to the test his disciples. And I love this part. So he turns to Philip. By the way, I don't do well with tests. I don't know if you do. I think it'd be a lot easier if God just announced this is going to be a test. You know, like that once a month the radio does this weird, and it's, this is a test. For the next 60 seconds, you go, okay, it's only a test. And TVs will do the same thing. And you go, or, or once a month we have the air sirens. Okay, it's just a test. I wish I would catch on sooner. Because for me, it's usually three days later, three weeks later. That was a test. Yep, Mike, and you failed it. You didn't realize it was just a test. So he said, okay, this is a test. He's going to test Philip. Say, hey, Philip, you're from around here. Which one we compare Scripture with Scripture? He, he's from that area. Bethsaida. You know these people. You have relatives here. You have former school teachers here. You have your friends are here. How do, we reckon, how do we meet them? How do we meet their needs? See, it'd be like Jesus coming up to you and say, you know what, you're from Haleiwa. You're from Sunset. You're from Wailua. You're from Schofield. How do we meet these people with the gospel? How do we reach them with the good news? You're going, well, I don't know. There's, you're talking about thousands and thousands yeah how do we meet their needs their spiritual needs how do we reach them with the gospel we go that's a huge question so for philip how do we reach them how do we meet their needs and how do you think philip felt do you think he's there going why are you picking on me yeah pick on peter he's usually got his foot in his mouth you know, why, why me you know look around you got other people no but you're from here so you should know how to Get these. So Philip does what we normally do. He looks at his natural resources, his bank account, or lack thereof. He said, you know what? Even six or eight months of wages, they don't give him like a bite. They do nothing. Now, what gets me is there's this lie out there, and I've heard this quoted in church. God won't give me more than he knows I can handle. That's a lie. God calls you to mission impossible. He calls you to beyond yourself to where you go, I can't do this. I don't have the resources. I don't even have a way to get the resources. It's beyond me. And so we could walk away from it or realize, well, maybe God's up to something. So that's a flat-out lie. God won't call me to do something that I can't handle. Yeah, he will because he wants me to lean on him. He wants me to turn to him and say, Lord, I can't do it, 
You do it, and you'll get all the credit. You'll get all the glory. So he's putting them to the test. And here comes Andrew, Peter's brother. I just love, I, I don't know if you're picturing this. Hey, there's a kid over here. He's got five bar barley loaves, which is usually for poor people. And he's got two tilapia. Now, it doesn't say tilapia, but that's what I think it was. Because if you go there now, uh, last time we went over, a bunch of us were at the Sea of Galilee. And there's a bunch of restaurants there. And you can order St. Peter's fish. And what it is? Deep fried tilapia. So you can go to Israel and get some or just go fishing here at the Anahulu stream and get tilapia over there. So he's saying, hey, we got some loaves and some fish. Yeah, but what is that going to do? So here, don't you think he felt stupid to even mention that? Don't you think as soon as he said it, I can't believe I said that. I mean, come on. There's thousands. This, this, can we delete that? Can we pretend I didn't say that? And he goes, no, actually, it could be a word of wisdom. It could be the solution. In this case, it was the solution. One time we went to one of those escape rooms. You ever do that? Really cool thing. You go into a room, and you have to figure out how to get out. It's really annoying sometimes. But uh, one time, we, a bunch of us went in there, and we're trying to get the clues together. Do you know what I'm talking about? Trying to get the clues together. And one person was off to the side, not doing anything, finally spoke up. Said, well, why don't we try this? Because it seems so obvious that everyone would have thought of it already. And they go, why don't we try that? And that was the solution. But they thought, well, everybody knows that. No, 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 no. So here's the deal. You could be like that and go in a group and go, well, why, why don't we uh, stop and pray? And you're just thinking, Everybody here knows this, but somebody needs to say it. Have you ever been in that group where you go, um, I don't think anybody here has the solution. Why don't we stop and pray? And everyone's thinking that. But it took you to just stand up and go, I think we should stop and pray. And it turns out to be the solution that's needed at that time. So when we had five loaves and two fish, it's a personal testimony, the first mission our short-term mission from this church was in 1978. That's Most of you were not born. But the old geezers here remember this. Karen and I were, were called to go to Poland. Uh, I still know Polish to this day. Jesus Christe, droga, pravda, izuche. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So we had a fantastic time, but we're going, wow, um, we had to have this much money in. It was with one of the elders at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Pete, we're the only ones from Hawaii. There's people from California. We're going, and we're all excited. It goes, okay, we need this much money in by this date. Great. I had a lot of work. I'm going to get this. I was working on surfboards. So we, get, we had just come back from the mainland. We used to go over there and sing, and, and uh, we came back. I'm working... And, and we got completely smashed with taxes. Just, you know, I was paying my own taxes and just hadn't saved up right for it. Just got killed with taxes. Okay, paid that off. So now, every dollar is going to go towards Poland. 
And I'm driving up. Uh, Tom Mayo had a surf shop up in Wahiwa. I'm on my way up there to work on boards, and my car breaks down on the way up there. Okay. Uh, mechanic goes, it's probably 50 bucks. Okay. Today's free. I'm going to work for the... The car turned out to be almost $300. It, well, I believe it was um, $299.49. Greg Laurie comes over, and he's this pastor of a big church, and he's, he's sharing that Tuesday night, and he's sharing about going through trials. And out of nowhere, he goes, yeah, and you're going along, and then all of a sudden, boom, your car breaks down, $300. People turn to me. Did you, did you tell him? Did you talk to him? No. But I thought God was calling me out. I told Greg later on, you missed it by 51 cents. <laughs> okay, I think God is speaking to me. And so when it came time to put our down payment down, we had $25. I mailed off a check. I said, I think we're supposed to go. Uh, and in faith, here it is. But, uh, and you know what? In time, God provided every last cent and then some. And we went on our first mission trip. But the thing is that $25 seemed like five loaves and two fish. Like, what's this among so many? So here's God's multiplication. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Like, it's not like he's panicking. Oh, man, what do we do now? He knows what he's going to do. So he starts with, bring them to me. And I have a question up here. Do we? Do we bring people to Christ? Do we, uh, like we did in the Jesus Re Revolution. You know, it was very common when this, first, when this church first started, we'd have two main Bible studies, a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. It was very common to see Six people get saved every time. It weren't, at least it was seen. It was so exciting that at the end of the Bible study, here we go, who's going to respond to the gospel? But you know what was happening? We were so excited about the change going on in our lives that we, we were lovingly aggressive inviting people, bringing them to Christ. You got to come hear this guy. You got to come hear this message. You got to come hear the worship. And people would get saved. So he says, bring them to me. Secondly, he received them. And I have here, whether he was a Herod, the Tetrarch, who had John the Baptist killed, or Mary, the mother of Jesus, he'll receive everybody. Do you ever think that that person, it is impossible for them to come to Christ? And that may be the very person that Christ is trying to reach. He received them. Didn't matter. He didn't say, I'll receive you if you clean up your act. I'll receive you if you get right with it. He said, I'll receive you. We'll work on the other things later. Then he blessed them. We love this part. So if you're picturing this, he receives the, the bread. He receives the fish. It says elsewhere, he lifted it up and blessed. He said, Father, thank you. You provided. How many people are going, Seriously? I still see five loaves and two fish. What's he talking about? Thank you for providing. And he blessed and we just, so it's kind of like your life. You come to Christ, he receives you. You're just blown out like, wow, I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. If I die right now, I go to heaven because of Jesus Christ. He receives you. But then he blesses you. We, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
We have our sins are forgiven, just lifted. Do you remember? Like, like if your sin was this heavy 100-pound backpack, it was just lifted. It was just gone. What a blessing. And for the first time, you might have had joy unspeakable, full of glory. Like, unspeakable me. I can't put it into words. I should really be bummed out right now. But I am so blessed. I have so much joy. And so he, he blesses. But then... Uh, he breaks. Now, we don't like this part. So he takes the bread, he blesses it, and, you know, why does he have to do that? We always think being broken is a bad thing, but it can be a very good thing. If you have a horse, the, uh, you know, the wild broncos, and you go out and you catch one, you want that horse broken in before you're going to ride him. See, there, broken is a good thing. And so here it is. He, he breaks it not to destroy it, but to distribute it. So the, the final thing he does, he distributes it. He meets the needs of others by doing this. If he leaves it whole, one person is blessed. If he breaks it, thousands are blessed. Now, they were full, then they picked up the leftovers. Here's God's multiplication. Here's his math. In Jude, I just read this this week in a devotions. What a neat verse. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, we're mostly thinking, oh, be added to you or this. Or that. No, I want it to be multiplied to you. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of person I want to be married to. Someone who has a multiplication of love, a multiplication of grace. Those people are great to be around. And it only comes from Jesus Christ. Now, why would we settle for God's bare minimum as if he has such a thing when we can have it multiplied? What if this morning you haven't heard squat? Yeah, there's something about missionaries in Africa. But right now, God pinpoints and says, tell you what, I want to multiply love in your life. I'm down. That sounds good. You'd have to say, you know, I think I've been settling for the bare minimum when you want to multiply these things in my life. Now, just a couple of instances in the Old Testament how we see a similar thing. We see this huge need and God using a very limited resource to meet that need. The first is found in Psalm 78. In verse 19, where this, the Psalm 78 is a historical psalm talking about God's faithfulness to the Jews in the wilderness versus their unfaithfulness. And so at one point they're saying, you know, we want to eat meat. We're over this manna. Enough non-bread, okay? We want something to chew. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll send quail. You'll have meat this time next week. This time tomorrow, you're going to have enough quail. Right. Like that's going to happen. And, and so they, they said, oh, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Meaning, do you think, I don't know if even God Almighty can do that. I mean, look, at you're talking probably two million people of the Jews. And all of a sudden God said, okay, I'm going to feed you all meat tomorrow. Yeah, right. He did. He did. 
but they were limiting God. Saying, I don't even think God could do that. Here's another place in 2 Kings chapter 7. Probably my favorite. We're now talking about Elisha, the prophet. Remember, first it was Elijah, and then it was Elisha. And during Elisha's time, God, there was a famine on the land that was unbelievable, where the food for sale was a donkey's head. That cost way too much. You could never afford that. The next item was dove's poop. And it was even, you couldn't afford that. Now I'm reading that and I'm going, I would really have to be hungry before I spend good money for dove's poop. I think if it came to that, I'd rather die. Just shoot me. I've lived a good life. I'm not, that stuff disgusting. And so this is how they were in dire straits. There's no way out. It had been like this for a long time. And at this point, Elijah says, this time tomorrow, it's all back to normal. This time tomorrow, it's, you know, everything's going to be back. The stores will be full of food and we'll be back to, to and one guy goes, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this be? I love that term, windows in heaven because it's brought up a few times in Scripture. So here's this skeptic. I don't blame him. I mean, a guy who's looking at the enormity of the, the, the need and, and the lack of supply, and here he's going, okay, I heard your promise, and I guess you think it's from God, but I don't think God himself can bring this about. And so the prophet goes, you know what? You're going to see it, but you won't enjoy it. And I think this is what the life of unbelief does. It watches other people enjoy. They partake. And yet that person, the skeptic, doesn't get to enjoy it. Matter of fact, we know the history of this guy. He was trampled to death when the next day it, the prophecy became true. Oh, you'll see others enjoying it, but you won't have one bite. You'll just look on now, here's one thing. If you've been in this church for any length of time, you realize I rarely, rarely, rarely talk about giving. To me, it's between you and God. I don't know. I don't see the records. I don't know who gives what. I don't want to. But sometimes I, I feel I don't want to rob you of a blessing. So I have one slide here to explain this, okay? And it's like giving. Sometimes we see the enormity of our bills or of how much things have gone up. And I love sharing it on this now because financially we're sound. We're fine. It's not like dig deeper. It's not that. But God promises a blessing to pour out, the, see if the windows of heaven won't contain it. The first thing he requires is first fruits, not leftovers. Matter of fact, you're probably familiar with Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, he'll, he'll bless you. Two, three verses later, that's 5 and 6. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your first fruits. In the context 
of trust in the Lord with all your heart? It's giving. Tithe. It's tithe means ten, a tenth in Hebrew. But it's giving first fruits, not leftovers. It's giving in faith, not going by the circumstance. I, I look around. I, I, I don't see how you're going to do it, Lord. But you say, if I do this, you'll do it. Giving faithfully, not just when I am able, but consistently. Consistently. Giving joyfully. The Bible says God loves a, a historic, uh, not historical, what is a hilarious giver. Matter of fact, if I can't give laughing, God says, just keep it, Mike. I don't need it. He, he loves a hilarious giver. And then here's the promise. It's not my promise. It's God's promise. In Malachi, remember the windows of heaven? Try, try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. Guys, that's his promise. It's not mine. So for someone here, take heed. And this is how he promises to bless. All right, enough of that. We started with David and Svea flood. And unfortunately, David didn't enjoy the Lord's blessing, even though one life saved for Jesus turned into 110,000. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We should all be so fruitful. But he missed it. He had this rotten attitude. Thankfully, he returned just before he died. Now, here's another guy. This is Job. I did not have a picture of Job, okay? That would be a miracle. So I used a silhouette. But what do we know about Job? Well, the whole subject is, is um, being a blessing while being bombed. In a nutshell, Job, actually God bragged about Job. <laughs> I don't know if he's ever bragged about me, but hey, Satan, you ever consider my servant Job? Perfect, blameless, upright in all his ways. Fears God. Man, I'd love that to be said of me. And God set a limit. Okay, you can do this, this, and this, but you can't do this. And you know the story. He goes from being the richest man in the world to being broke in one day. Then his ten children are killed at once. Guys, the death of one child is so traumatic. I, I never want to feel that. Ten, all ten at once is unbelievable. Of course, then his wife says, you still trust God? Why don't you curse God and die? Besides, you have bad breath. And it says, Job worshiped God. So towards the end of his life, or towards the end of the book, God instructs Job, um, I want you to pray for those guys. His so-called friends, he had these four friends that I put in quotes because they were a pain. They were just a pain. They'd accuse him. Man, you can dish it out, but you can't take it. You're a hypocrite. God knows it. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, my goodness, what they did to Job. And finally, God says, um, listen, I, I want you to be a blessing. I want you to pray for your friends. Now, they haven't repented. I want them to crawl on their knees, Lord. I want them, 
no, no, no. You just offer prayer for them. Oh, man. Okay. And as Job prayed for his friends, God healed Job. He healed the friends too. But there's a, a ministry principle here. As I minister to others, I get ministered too. As you minister to others, you get ministered too. Now, you might have an attitude doing it. Before Calvary Chapel, Central Oahu was started, I was doing a Bible study up there. And, and one night, I mean, I was sicker than a dog. I drove up there by myself and passed out almost three. <laughs> Sorry. Just stupid. I should have stayed home. I get there, fever, crazy. And uh, hey, we open up the study. Anybody want prayer? A guy goes, yeah, I have a tummy ache. Could you pray for And I had such an attitude. You sissy. I didn't say that to his face, but what a wimp. You know, yeah, come on, pray for your tummy ache. And I'm not kidding. I had the worst attitude. Prayed for him, and I get healed. Boom. Job didn't have the attitude. He had obedience. So here's the thing. What are you taking home with you today from this sermon? Number one, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, interrupted this week. That's not prophecy. That's common sense. And in what we saw here with Jesus, the interruption was a divine appointment. He thought, I'm going over there and having a little vacay. And he said, no, you're going to minister to thousands. Interruptions. Pastor Chuck Smith uh, started all the Calvaries. He would always go, I have never been interrupted. How in the world? Because he saw every phone call as a divine appointment. He just was never interrupted. You'll be interrupted this week. Consider it a divine appointment. God calls us to mission impossible. It's not like, oh, God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. He gives me more than I can handle so that I'll turn to him and call out to him. Uh, then at those points, we can offer excuses or obedience. I love this. Do you know the... The five love, love languages, acts of service, physical touch and closeness, gift giving, um, act, um, words of affirmation, words of encouragement. I'm missing one, but what's that? Quality time. Thank you. Obviously. <laughs> Do you know God's love language? Obedience. You want to speak to God? Obedience. How about this one? Can we operate in compassion? That's the difference maker for Christ and how this relates to communion. Because we're going to take communion now. I, I thought, how do, you, how do we study these scriptures and not take communion? You know, be, communion is so symbolic of what we just talked about. He received. He receives your life. He lifts it up and blesses. He breaks. And he meets the needs of others through you.